You're listening to audio from Praxis Church Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. Our reading today is Genesis chapter 37. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, you were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in his mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to him, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams." But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hand, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that, we, he, may, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the blood, the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, thank you. Thanks for that reading, Grace. Uh, good to see you all. If I haven't met you before, my name's Josh. 
first-time guests or visitors, um, big warm welcome to you. You're an answer to prayer. We're glad that you're here with us this morning. We are entering into the final unit in the book of Genesis. We've been working through Genesis for a while, kind of two bigger unit sections, and now we're transitioning into the last one. And I've been looking forward to this since... Since we started Genesis, not because I'm looking forward to ending the book, I really love Genesis, but I really, really like this story. It teaches us many things about God's character, how he interacts and functions in the world, and, and, and when we behold this, it does change things for us. I, I am not exaggerating when I say the story of Jacob has transformed how I look at the world. It's changed how I view every single part of my day, and hopefully it's changed a few things about how I live as well. That is the goal. Uh, we're trying to be transformed by the truth of God's word, and um, there's lots here this morning. So if you haven't already, open your Bibles up. You need one here. Genesis 37 is where we are. You can Google that on your phone, Genesis 37. It'll come up. We've got blue Bibles on a barrel by the back doors. If you don't own a Bible, take that on your way out. It's our gift to you. But while you open your Bibles up, I'm going to open us in a word of prayer. Um, Father, I just thank you. Thank you for this great time of worship. Thank you for how you, um, you sent your son to come in pursuit of us. And I thank you for how you've given us your word and you've put your Holy Spirit in us to bring this word to life, to activate it, to ignite it. And your word says that we're transformed through the renewing of our minds. And so I pray as we read this, our minds would be renewed. The way we think about the world, the way we function would be formed and shaped more correctly because of the truth revealed in it. And, and I believe there's that kind of truth in the text this morning. So Holy Spirit, would you come do what I can't do? Is take the word of God and bring it to life in our hearts. And commit this time to you. Ask for your empowerment in the great name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Genesis 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings. In the land of Canaan... And then verse 2 begins this, these are the generations of Jacob. Now, if you've been with us throughout Genesis, um, there's 10 of these occurrences. 10 times this phrase, these are the generations, occurs. Each one is a different toledot. Getting super nerdy with you, but toledot's just a fancy way to say genealogy. Genesis is 10 different genealogies put together into to one kind of epic book that is Genesis. We are now in the final one, the, the genealogy of Jacob, and it's really going to focus in this last third of, the, of Genesis in on Joseph, who gets more page time than any other character in the book of Genesis. I, I love it. Okay, so it says, these are the generations of, of Jacob. Joseph, so the youngest one, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers, he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So over and over throughout the book of Genesis, we have seen kind of the, the reasons you shouldn't have more than one wife. Lots of these stories have been illustrating this to us. Here's another one right here. We're kind of seeing the consequences of what can happen. These boys... These brothers aren't described as brothers. The brothers of Joseph are described as the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. There's little tribes kind of like forming within this family unit, which wouldn't, shouldn't take place. You are a tribe, but here they've tribed off into to different groups. And uh, the text tells us that Joseph has bring some bad report against the other brothers. Uh, now, if you're a parent in the room and you have more than one child... You know this happens, right? You, one child comes and tells something about the other child, right? Just my home? No, so some people have had this happen. This happens. One of the kids makes themselves the police officer of the other. If you're here and that was you, you can put your hand up. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Wells lifted his wife's hand up. Anyone here, it was your sibling. Anyone here with that sibling, just point right at them. Right now, this is the point in the service where they get called out. Okay, Joseph's that guy. That's who Joseph is. Um, and it doesn't sound like his parents did much to stop him. And parents should. Parents should come. They should recognize these behaviors. They should try to stop it because it causes rifts, divisions, separation, segmenting. Ultimately, what's supposed to be one unit divides into multiple ones. Tattling, telling on people. Not a great life skill. And, um, and Jacob and his, Jacob's kind of 
been allowing it in his son Joseph. Actually, he might have been causing it. If you take a look at verse 3 with me, it says, Israel, that is Jacob. He got renamed last week. So Jacob is now Israel. Loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. And he made him a robe of many colors. Kind of a brutal statement, right? Some of you, you've grown up in homes like this where you knew your parent loved the other one more than you. It can cause feelings of jealousy. Um, you know, your brother gets something you don't. Your sister gets the love you don't. It can cause pain in the child, but division between the siblings. Fights where one kid now tries to steal the, the, the place of honor from the other child, tries to to shut the other one down or make themselves look better. This is the outcome of this. And we see this in the story. Jacob here, he treats Joseph differently. He treats him better. The text says he gives him a coat of many colors. And back in this days, that didn't mean you were like a Rastafarian. That these fabrics, different colors, they came from a whole bunch of different places. And so it's sort of like that his father has collected special things for him. Somebody stitched them all together into a really outrageous coat. It's like your dad coming home from business trips with gifts from foreign lands for only one of the kids. Can you imagine that? The resentment that might brew between two children when one gets treated better than the other. And this isn't a new thing in this family. If you've been with us throughout the book of Genesis, Jacob, Israel, his parents did this to him. Remember Isaac and Rebekah. Each had their own favorite child. Esau was Isaac's favorite child. Jacob was Rebekah's favorite child. They actually referred to them as your child, my child, the son of you, the son of me. And now it's continued all the way down. Insecurity. Now, amongst these brothers, because their place in the family isn't secure and they're all battling to be the favorite, Verse 4 says, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him, and they couldn't speak peaceably to Joseph. A lot of what takes place in this story takes place because Jacob's emotional baggage from his childhood now gets passed down into how he parents his children. Where we come from, how we were parented affects us, and it can have an effect on our kids if we don't pay attention if we're not careful. We need to recognize and deal with our past or we'll pass it on into the future. So if you're here and you're a parent, this is worth thinking about. I've spent some time thinking about this this week. And if you're here and you're not a parent, um, here's some free advice. Now's the time to start thinking about this stuff because parenting has a way of kind of bringing this to the surface where you find out all those little things that hurt in your past. Um, yeah, we're going to see that this has caused a very tense relationship between them. This is kind of the, the setting of this family. As we read on, it's important. So read with me, verse 5. Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream I've dreamed. Uh, behold, we're binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and your sheaves bowed down to mine. His brother said, oh, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams. The favorite son swaggers in in his outrageous coat and tells his brothers this dream. And the dream's going to come true. We'll see it a little later in the story. But how he shares it is a bit problem, a bit of a problem. Remember, I, I ran an oil rig in my 20s, and... <clears throat> This new guy showed up on the rig floor one day. Never seen him before in my life. He walks up and he says, one day, first thing he ever said to me, one day, Eyes is going to own this oil company and Yous is going to work for me. It's like an East Coast version of Jacob, but without a fancy coat. He had like coveralls that were two sizes too small. Now, he maybe, maybe he owns the oil company right now. I don't know, but... Uh, until that point, here's the thing, he was going to be harassed nonstop, right? And that's basically what we did to him. Um, this is the same, same thing that's true of, of Joseph here as well. There's some things you shouldn't share. I built a list of three. The first is this, the secrets of others. Shouldn't share that. Second thing, 
your toothbrush, just a public health announcement. Don't do that. The third thing, though, your dreams of domination. Just keep those to yourself, especially don't go share them with the people you plan to dominate over. But Jacob does this, and his, his brothers understandably push back. And now he's actually going to go on, he's going to share another dream, not just with his brothers, but with his folks around as well. Take a look at verse 9. It says, then he dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. I love behold. Anyway, behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars are bowing down to me. Then he told it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said, what's this dream you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow down before you? His brothers were jealous of him, probably further ridiculed him. Um, yellow punch buggied his arm, that sort of thing. But his father kept the saying in mind. He shares this dream, and his brothers harass him, but his dad treasures it up. He thinks about it, because there is something to these dreams, and we'll come back to that. We'll see this, actually, for all the remaining chapters from 37 to 50. There is something to these dreams. And I want to talk about dreams for just a minute, because as a culture, we love dreams. We love dreamers. We love people who chase their dreams. I got a few quotes up on the screen. The first from Eleanor Roosevelt. She said this, The future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. Walt Disney, he said, If you dream it, you can do it. Kobe Yamada, the author, he said, <coughs> Follow your dreams. They know the way. We love dreamers. This is the message of our culture. Just dream it and do it. And some people... Read that onto the story of Joseph here. They think that's what it is. And anyone here, you've seen the stage play, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Some of you, okay, so that's what that story does. They do this. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you um, the opening narration. So as the curtains open on this play, this is what the narrator behind the screen says. Some folks dream of the wonders they'll do before their time on this planet is through. Some just don't have anything planned. They hide their hopes and their heads in the sand. Now, I don't say who's wrong, who is right, but if by chance you're here for the night, then all I need is an hour or two to tell the tale of a dreamer like you. We all dream a lot. Some are lucky, some are not. But if you think it, want it, dream it, then it's real. You are what you feel. But all that I can say can be told another way in the story of a boy's a boy whose dreams came true, and he could be you. This is what the stage play says the story of Joseph is all about. Dream it. Visualize it. Follow your dreams. Actualize upon it. Oprah it. Secret it. Make it real. But this isn't what the message of the story of Joseph is about. This is not a story about God fulfilling Jacob's ambitious dreams. These aren't Joseph's dreams. These are God's revelation of the future. This is not a story about having big dreams and God fulfilling them for you because you hold on to them tight enough. This isn't a story about Jacob's dreams. This is a story about God revealing the future to sustain Jacob through some night or Joseph through some nightmares. That's what it's about. And we're going to see this nightmare begin now as we read on in verse 12. It says this, So now his brothers <coughs> went to pasture their flock near Shechem. Pay attention to that. And, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. And he said, Here I am. So he said to them, Go now, see if it's well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent them from the valley of Hebron, to Shechem. So his brothers went back to Shechem. If you were here last week, we talked about it. God had called them to go to Bethel. Instead, they stopped short at Shechem. Cruel, um, broken, jacked up place. His brothers, seems they like it. They've gone back there with their flocks. And, and notice as well, Jacob selling, sending Joseph back as a spy. Go tell me what your brothers are doing. Tell me how it's doing. He's, he's telling his son to do this. So he goes... And then in verse 15, we read, once I find it here, um, a man found him, Joseph, wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? 
He said, I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Well, then tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they've gone away. Uh, For I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers, and he found them at Dothan. They saw him coming from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They could see him in his fancy coat coming somehow across the fields, and it evoked some emotion. It awoke that bitterness, and they decide we're going to off him. They hatched this plan. And, and so verse 19, it says, They said to one another, Here comes that dreamer. Come, let us kill him, throw him into one of the pits. And then we'll say, A fierce animal came and devoured him, and then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. They heard his dreams. Now they want to crush his dreams. Why? Well, I think their thinking probably goes something like this. If we kill Joseph... He'll no longer be the favorite, and that position of favorite son will be up from grabs. One of us can probably come and snatch that away. Maybe we can become the favorite child. So they decide to, to off him, but then something happens. Verse 21, we see the brother Reuben come back. He was away somewhere, probably making um, the world's greatest sandwich. He comes back into the picture, though, and, and he says this, but when Reuben heard it, He rescued him out of his brother's hand, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said, Shed no blood. Throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So Reuben comes, stops this evil plan, and it kind of makes him look like he's a good guy. Here comes moral big brother Reuben coming to stop the murder. But I don't think that's actually what's going on here. See, in chapter 35, we skipped over this chunk getting here. There's a, there's a line there that's very important. It will tell us some important information about Reuben. It's Genesis 35, 22. It tells us, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. He went in and he slept with his father's wife, his brother Dan and his brother Naphtali's mom. And his dad found out, which means he is not dad's favorite son anymore. Okay, he's the firstborn, not anymore. He's not welcome in the family home, probably. He's not dad's favorite son, and he's probably not a big hit with Dan and Naphtali either, right? So the brothers, they're probably wanting Joseph gone so they can come and take this position that Reuben's lost, and Joseph won't be around to claim. When Reuben hears this, he intervenes in their plans, not just because he's a good and moral guy. I don't think he is. I think he's, he's probably a pretty wretched sinner. He's, he's doing actually this out of the, his, he's saving them out of the same motivation as his brothers. He's trying to take a spot. He's acting out of his own self-interest. 22 tells us this. It says that um, Reuben said to them, or probably 24, where is it? 22, yeah, he, he rescued him that he he might be restored to his father. So he wants to modify the plan. Instead of killing him, he'll throw him in a pit, go back later once the brothers are gone, bring him back to their father, and now his father will love him, reinstate him as the first son because he saved Joseph after he thought Joseph was gone. He'd earn back this title of firstborn. And so this is what they're doing um, until um, something else comes along. Verse 23. Joseph came to his brothers. They stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors. They took him, threw him in the pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. So then they sat down to eat, and they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there in just killing him? Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites we don't need to do anything to him. Let them do it. So they, they listened to him, and the Midianite traders passed by. They brought Joseph up out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites, and they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned and saw Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brother and said, The boy is gone. Where shall I go? I can't go home now. I don't have my bribe. I don't have the thing that might earn my favor back. They conspire and realize that unless they bring back proof, though, that Joseph is dead, the place of honor is not going to be released. 
Dad will hold out hope. That position won't be up for grabs. And so what they do is they double down in this wicked deception and, and they go a little further. They took his robe, Joseph's colorful coat, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we found, can you identify it? Is this your son's? Jacob um, identified it and said, it is my son's. A fierce animal has surely devoured him. He's without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments, put on sackcloth, the clothing of mourning, and, and his sons and his daughters rose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, I'm going to go down to Sheol. I'm going to die mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph into Egypt to Potiphar, the captain of the guard. He's a slave in Potiphar's house. So here's what's happened. Just a horrendous situation suddenly befell Joseph as he was going out to tattle on his brothers. And this is going to set the stage for all of the story that unfolds from here in the, the 13 chapters before Genesis concludes. But it's showing us something very important. It's showing us that actions have consequences. Jacob would not be, pardon me, Joseph would not be enslaved in Egypt if he just kept that dream to himself. If he hadn't swaggered in in his fancy coat and he'd been quiet, he wouldn't be enslaved. Actions have consequences. Additionally, Joseph's brothers, they do this to Joseph because of the way their father played favorites. Jacob, the dad, his actions have had consequences. They're bearing out on this story. Additionally, there's some consequences not just being dealt out to Jacob here, but also to Joseph here. Pardon me, I'm interchanging these names. It's not just Joseph who is reaping consequences. Jacob is as well. If you were with us earlier in the story, you'll remember Jacob tricked his dad. He stole a blessing from his dad. He did some crooked and deceptive things to get his father's favor as well, and now his kids are doing the same thing. Jacob deceived his father with goat skins and Esau's clothes. Now <clears throat> Jacob is being deceived by goat's blood and Joseph's clothes. He's reaping what he's sown. We're seeing some cause and effect here. Jacob's sons deceived their father to get a blessing that was given to Joseph, just as Jacob deceived his father Isaac to take away the blessing that was Esau's. Lots of cause and effect here. And really what we're seeing is that some of the situations that you and I face, we were facing them because of our own stupidity. Some of them are because of other people's sinfulness. Some of them, we, the consequences, that the situations we're facing, they're just because of forces outside of our control. Actions, though, have consequences, and sometimes they have bigger consequences than we realize. Another um, proof that we see this in this story, actions having consequences, is this. Um, Jacob's brothers sell him into slavery in Egypt, but in not too long, they're going to be there as well. In fact, all of their descendants are going to spend 400 years in Egypt as slaves. Because actions have consequences. The scripture says this, you reap what you sow. We know this saying, karma is annoying. Culture thinks that this is kind of what karma is. You're getting a taste of your own medicine. You're getting it back in this life. This, this isn't really what karma is, though. I think that's an important note, so I want to just explain this for a sec. Karma, it's a, it's a concept that you get kind of a, in, in the future, in the next life, in your reincarnated life. That's what Western Buddhism teaches. You get this, and, and originally it comes from Hinduism. You do something, it will come back on you in the next life. Now, Christianity agrees with this. It would say our actions do have consequences after we die, but Christianity goes a step forward, um, further than Hinduism or Buddhism does, and it says that some of our actions actually have consequences in this life. That is, we, we think that's karma because you've got the good karma jar, you like put a penny in, get a penny back type thing. That's not Buddhism, that's not Hinduism. They don't get to lay credit to that. That's a Christian idea that you might encounter the effects of some previous action in this life. 
There's justice. That exists because there's a God who's just, which Buddhism doesn't have. But amidst this, okay, so amidst this this mess going on, um, Christianity offers an even greater truth, one that when we properly understand it, it will blow our minds. Ephesians tells us this. In him, in God, we've been we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. And this is what I want to draw our attention to, this line. Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It says that God works everything according to his plan. You know, the things that we face might come as a result of our actions, but they're accomplishing the plan of God in the middle of that. And that's perplexing. Isaiah also picks up on this. He says, oh, Lord... You're my God. I will exalt you. I'll praise your name for you've done wonderful things. Plans formed of old, faithful and sure. God, it says God's got a plan formed from before the foundations of the world and, and we're just seeing it played out. God has a story from humanity written from long before we existed and, and our moral agency and choice doesn't thwart this or counteract it. It actually accomplishes it. And even more mind-blowing in this is that if we're Christ's, God's actually using our actions and even their consequences for our benefit. Look at this, Romans 8, 28 says this, we know in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purposes. And the whole remainder of this book of Genesis, it's gonna prove this one verse to us. It's gonna show us that Everything, regardless of what we face, God is not only working together to accomplish his plan, he works it for the benefit of his people. And so the situations we face could be because of our own stupidity. It could be because of other people's sinfulness. It could be because of outside forces beyond our control. But in the midst of that, it says that God is using all of that to accomplish his will. God gave Joseph a dream. And the dream and his swagger, it resulted in him being sent to Egypt and sold in slavery. And we'll see in, in coming weeks, Joseph is going to be falsely accused by his slave owners. Then he'll be thrown in jail for a long period of time. But eventually, through the midst of all of these atrocious, unfortunate events happening against him, he's going to end up becoming the right-hand man to Pharaoh and overseeing food distribution during the famine in which his brothers will come and bow down before him asking for food, fulfilling that dream of the sheaves bowing down. Then they'll go back home and they'll bring the whole family back who will bow down before him, fulfilling the dream that the sun and the moon and the stars would bow down before him. God works all the nightmarish consequences of their actions together to accomplish the dream that he gave Joseph. If you're ready to, to really have your mind blown now, the people of Israel, they're going to be sent into slavery for 400 years because of the actions of Joseph's brothers. But God told them this was going to happen 200 years before they actually end up there. 200 years before what we're seeing here. So their actions sent him, but 200 years before, God said this. God spoke to Abraham and said, Know for certain your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And I love, love, love the back third of Genesis. I love this. Because it presents to us in technicolor, if you saw what I did there, how God uses the worst of situations to accomplish his will. He's never looking down and going, oh, shucks, I didn't know that was going to happen. Oh, darn it, that really puts a stick in the spokes of my ideas. He's all-knowing. He knew it was going to happen. He's all-powerful. He could have stopped it. Except what he's doing is he's working it all together to accomplish his plans. That's a glorious truth. And as a result of that, when we see that, it should result in us, the people of God, being different, radically different. Whatever we face, we know God is all-knowing. and he, He's allowed it to happen. He's all-powerful. He could have stopped whatever we're facing. So it must have a purpose. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, 
you have that hope. You have that hope that whatever you're facing, however horrific and nightmarish it is, there's a God who's in control of it and has allowed it for something. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you don't have that hope, though. Because you don't believe in a benevolent God who's over all things. And the situations, therefore, that you're facing, they're just that. They're just situations. They're sucky situations that you're facing. Maybe you deserve it. Maybe you don't. But here's the most maddening part of it. It, There's actually no purpose to it. Because if there's no God, you have no purpose. You're just space dust, colliding with space dust. The things happening to you, they don't really matter at all. I've, um, I've unfortunately met too many people who say lost a loved one and they're mad at God about it. And they go, how could a good God let that happen? And they end up just abandoning this idea of God altogether. But it's always perplexing to me because when you do away with the idea of God, it doesn't take the problem away. You've still lost your loved one. You're still facing an atrocious situation. You've just lost the potential of there being a purpose to it. Or you've just given up the idea that God might one day be working that together in a way that you don't understand right now to accomplish his plan, um, his purposes, and also work together for your good. Romans tells us we know in all things God is working together everything for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. Now, that doesn't mean that in the end, hey, you and me, all of our dreams are going to come true. We'll be happy and healthy and we'll dress well and love the car we want. It means this, that God will always accomplish and use the good and the bad to accomplish his purposes. We have that assurance. And if we are after what his will is for our life, then we should be a people who can rejoice and experience peace and, and, and walk out in trust regardless of what we face because we know that God isn't surprised by it. <clears throat> As we go through um, this final bit of the story of Joseph over the coming weeks, we're going to see many lessons unpacked for us, glorious truths that when we behold them. They they will transform how we think, and they should transform how we live. There's many of them. This is why I love the story of Joseph. But there's two that I see being held up before us in the text this morning. Um, I just want to point these two out. The, The first glorious truth that I see this text presenting is this. God is the sovereign author of the story. If you're a note taker, write that down in those little books. God's the sovereign author of the story. It is not just that things will work out in the end. Okay, godless optimists believe that. It's not just that the things you face can help develop you. Okay, Stoics, godless Stoics believe that. It's not just that God's in charge either. Or that like he comes and he turns and he he changes things around to work for your good. That is a dualistic understanding of the universe. Like there's this um, power of good and evil on either shoulder and they're battling it out, but God's working for you. Um, Many of us have that understanding. I think we got it from Looney Tunes, probably somewhere along the line, but it has infiltrated the church as well. I'll give you an example. Worship song, many of you probably know by Michael W. Smith. Some of you, you're like, don't throw him under the bus. I'm going to for a sec, okay? I love this song, and I don't mind Michael W. Smith, but this song, Sovereign Over Us. Anyone know that? I'd sing it for you, but um, it would be terrible, and I'm losing my voice. So there's this, I actually really like the song, except for the chorus. The chorus says, even with the enemy meant for evil, you turn it for our good. You know it now? I'm not going to sing Okay, even with the enemy meant for evil, you turn it for our good. Listen to this, okay? God's not turning anything. This is actually a butchering of one of the greatest lines in all of the Bible, the line that kind of puts a bow on the book of Genesis. If you want to turn there, the very last chapter, a couple sentences just before it ends in Genesis 50, an amazing line. I got it up on the screen for those who don't have a Bible with you. Joseph... 
about 21 years from this point where we're reading today. He's standing in Egypt. His brothers come and bow down before him. They go home. They bring their family back. They bow down before him. Joseph reveals who he is, and then he says to his brothers this, you meant this for evil against me. They did. But listen to what he says. God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You meant it for evil. God didn't turn it for good. God meant it. He uses the same word. Okay, actually, I like the other translation as well. The NIV, it says this. You intended to harm me. God intended it for good. In fact, whose will came first? God's or the brother's? God didn't turn any actions. He actually declared that they were going to be in Egypt as slaves. He declared all of this was happen, would happen 200 years before this. It makes us think about whose will is more sovereign. God's not turning anything. He's doing way more than that. He's working it. He's allowing it. He's using the evil to accomplish his plan. And this is showing us this story that God has written a story. He is sovereignly in control of it, and this should give his people peace because God's sovereign will is inviolable. God's sovereign will is inviolable. If you have a notepad, write that down. God's sovereign will is inviolable. And if you're like, how do I spell inviolable? (laughs) Write this. Nothing can stop God's plan. That's simple enough. Nothing can stop God's plan. Nothing we face, nothing the world facing, is facing now, nothing the world will ever face. No evil dictators, no sickness, no pandemic or plandemic or woke school board or crooked politician, nothing will thwart God's plan. It's all somehow accomplishing it. That's crazy. Even though the actions of those parties might be wicked and evil, And even though the church and Christians should oppose wickedness, we can have a peace in the middle of it because it's not going to stop it. Hey, the story's written, and in the end, God wins. So we have a peace in the middle of it. Consider this. The brothers hear the dream of Jacob, or Joseph, pardon me, and they, they try to stop it. But what the story shows us is that their attempts to stop it actually accomplish it. Their opposition fulfills it. God's not turning. He's using to to frustrate the heck out of the people who try to oppose him. And just to show how powerful he is. And if the things that happened to Joseph accomplish God's plan, could I suggest perhaps the things that you and I are facing are accomplishing it as well? Could I actually do more than suggest Whatever you're facing, if you are God's, it's for your good. Regardless of whether you would bend the knee and call him Lord or not, they're fulfilling God's plans. So I want to ask, what situations are you facing that feel out of control? What obstacles are you up against that you feel exasperated by? how might the Lord actually be using those to accomplish his plan and work for your benefit? Because that's the truth of the scripture. When we forget that God is the sovereign author of the, part, uh, the story, pardon me, we take our anger out on the things that are preventing us from accomplishing our dream. Because we put our dream ahead of God's will. And then we oppose anything that might stop us when actually... What we often fall into there is we fail to acknowledge that that person or that situation isn't sovereign, God is. Regardless of what we face, this story gives us hope, and and it reminds us of this. God is the sovereign author of this story. Secondly, though, it reminds us this, church, we're not at the end of the story. Joseph didn't know the end of the story. We, We get to read it, and we can see the end of the story, and we get some of this perspective, but... It's easy to forget who's writing this story. It's not the situations that oppose us. Those things aren't in control. God is. And and we we need to take the same position. We need to zoom out and go, how might God actually be working this together and acknowledge that 
because we're still breathing, we're not at the end of our story yet. Regardless of how daunting a situation might look, if we're not at the end of the story, we we can be armed with this truth that God is still the sovereign author of it and, and his promises are true. And so we don't need to fret in the middle of our situations. I'll give you an analogy um, from one of my favorite movies, um, a Tim Burton movie. Any Tim Burton fans? Okay, um, Big Fish. Anyone seen Big Fish? I think it's his best movie. Big Fish, uh, the story of a character played by Ewan McGregor. And he, he, he goes on this crazy, like, Big Fish life story, gets into all these crazy adventures and misadventures, and at one point, early on in the story, he boldly runs up to this witch's house and looks her in her glass eye, which everyone says I think would kill you or turn you to stone. He goes and he looks in her eye, and he sees the end of his life. Okay, I'm not saying the theology of this movie is good, but he sees this, and for the rest of his life, what he does is he can face any situation that comes, because he says, This is not my end. I saw it in the old lady's eye. I love that line. Over and over and over he says this. Now, here's how this applies. I'll pull it back in. Um, We don't know how our present situations are going to work out, but we have this hope. God's declared the end for us. He's told that it ends well for us. God might not work out things in this present situation, um, this month, maybe even our life, okay? But we have the assurance that in the end, He most certainly is working things out for us. And so we're to be a people who are not distraught, depressed, despairing, discouraged, disgruntled, disillusioned. We're to remember God is the author of the story. He's written the end for us, and we're not in the final chapter yet. Many think Christianity is all about God kind of making our dreams come true. We're just, he's a cosmic pinata who we whack blessings out of through our silly little obedient actions that we think please him, and then we get disgruntled when they don't happen. And I think God sometimes actually does that to frustrate us because this is not about our dreams. It's about what God's actually doing in the world. And our lives are all about learning to live in a state of trust and and belief that he is doing what he said working all things together in the end. So our sickness might not go away. Your marriage might not be reconciled. Your financial situation might not go away. Your relationship with that person might not be restored. Your kids might never talk to you again. You might not accomplish everything you wanted to and check off all the items on your bucket list, but there's something better. Whether you feel like your life is a fairy tale or a mystery or, I don't know, a romantic drama or a failed romantic comedy or maybe science fiction or just a horrendous tragedy. This story gives us hope that we are his and God is weaving all of our stories together into an epic story that ends well for us. We have that hope. First Corinthians says, what no eye has seen nor I imagined No human mind has conceived this is what he has prepared for us. Just let me read that again. Listen to this. What no eye has seen, what he has for us is better than anything we've ever seen. What no ear has heard, you have not heard anything that comes close to this. And what no human mind has conceived, you can't imagine literally the things that God has prepared for those who love him. That's the glorious truth Christianity presents. And now, here, many people in our culture, they, they'll, they'll, they steal this from us. They steal, they, they, um, they bootleg this from Christianity. They abscond it and go, yeah, and, and they, they believe, hey, when you die, everything's going to be better. Everything will work out. It's all going to be better. Listen to me. That is, if you don't acknowledge Christ and Christianity, you don't get that. No worldview offers that. Except this one, Christianity, because there's a sovereign God who's over all things and working all things together to accomplish his purposes. Christianity is the story of a God who came and, like Joseph, suffered in order to accomplish the plan of God. Like Joseph, Jesus had people conspire to kill him. But just as in the story of Joseph, the wicked and vile deeds performed against Jesus actually just fulfilled God's plan. And so Jesus was killed in our place, but the end is that you and I could be reconciled to God. And there is some 
similarities here between Jacob and Jesus that we can't miss, church. Just as the brothers didn't believe Joseph's vision, people didn't believe Jesus' words. Just as Joseph's brothers were, were jealous of him, the high priests were jealous of Jesus. Just as the brothers conspired to kill Joseph, the descendants of Israel sought to kill Jesus. Just as Joseph was sold for the price of a slave, Jesus was sold for the price of a slave. Just as Joseph's coat was taken, so was Jesus' garment taken and, and, and split and given away. Just as Joseph was an innocent man taken into prison, Jesus was an innocent man who was condemned. And just as the brother's wicked actions accomplished God's plan, the actions against Jesus and even the wicked killing of Jesus himself. Like the most wicked act ever fulfilled God's plan. And I want us to notice one last thing here as we close. Reuben sought to kill his brother so that he could be reconciled to his father and receive the favor of the firstborn. Catch this, Jesus was killed so that you and I could be reconciled to the Father and received the blessing of the firstborn. Just as Joseph was taken out of the pit alive, so too was Jesus brought back from death alive. And as a result, church, we have hope because God is sovereign. He's on the throne. Nothing is opposing it. He is the sovereign of the universe, and his sovereign will is inviolable. Let me ask you to stand with me, and I'm going to close this in prayer. Lord, I just thank you for this glorious revelation of yourself and this reminder that nothing we face is thwarting your plan, that you are more powerful than any other will. You're more powerful than my will. You're more powerful than all the wills in the universe that stand in opposition to you. You are accomplishing your will. We thank you that you said, despite our rebellious hearts, you've come and you've grabbed hold of some and saved us and bought us back from slavery. And we, so we return now praise to Jesus, who's worthy of it all. And we just declare our hope is held secure by him alone. Our, our, our hope in the midst of whatever we face is in him alone. We pray in your great name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.